Welcome to today's episode of the Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so we can become who we were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith, and if you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share the podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at JaybirdFit. Today, we're going to dive into masculinity with TikTok's very own Greybeard Actual. Yeah, so my dad, my dad and I, my dad was a good ex- example to me, but we were very different. He was a cop that didn't really want to be a cop, wasn't so much a tough guy, kind of masculine, you know, and I wanted to be a Marine and, and all these kinds of things. And my son's a more reckless soul the way I was, so we, we can relate pretty well. But what I've been talking to him a lot about lately is really just a lot of the basics, like a Robo Tomasi might cover, understanding that don't put women on a pedestal, they're human beings just like us. Don't run him down either, right? I just get into what's masculinity. He's a pretty smart kid, so the same thing I tell my sons, the same thing I was talking about on a TikTok live last night. I don't get into what is a good man. Right. They, they exist, but this is a, a subjective thing. Let's at least first lay the foundation of what it means to be masculine universally, right? Objectively. And so, and I, you'll never hear me use the word, the phrase, "What is a real man." I, I, I cringe. Even the a person is saying it, and I otherwise agree with them. When I hear somebody say, what is a real man, or real men don't do this or that, you're losing credibility quickly. Just stop. I heard somebody, I, I would recognize their face. I don't remember who it was. About a year ago on TikTok, and these kind of muscle-up guys, and they had a big following. I haven't seen them lately, but they were, I don't know how funny they were trying to be, but they were saying real men don't wear sandals or flip-flops. or whatever. I wear sandals all the time. That's just such an arbitrary, silly thing to say, right? Yeah. And then you get into now Crocs on another hand. That's that's a different conversation. Yeah, I was that came after my time. I was never a Croc guy. Birkenstocks. No, I do like Eva sports sandals, and they're pretty good. I try not to get too much on this whole feminist war on masculine directly because it can be a distraction. People start to get into well, why this? Why are they doing that? Okay, we can get into that later. But it's happening whether it's purposeful or just the natural direction of hedonistic society, that they always do tend to go more feminine. The men do become more effeminate. We can see that in world history. So I'm just trying to focus on, okay, what's the attack on masculinity, broadly speaking? It is it is to make the definition of masculinity subjective. You look at the APA, the American Psychological Association, in 2019, they put out their guidelines and traditional masculinity is problematic. And it needs to be treated as such. And you read down into, into that, the PDF that I have on file, and they basically say it's too hard on young men to be raised under these standards of this traditional masculinity. They're not allowed to be emotional. They're not allowed to. And what they keep coming back to is young men, men in general, ought to be able to define their own masculinity. Well, you can't define your own masculinity if there is an existing objective definition of masculinity. You can't do it. And what I used on my TikTok live last night, I had a flashlight in my hand, but same thing, you know, the word objectivity comes from object. So this is a pen. I can tell you, here's the object. It's a pen. So there's nothing subjective about that. If you try to tell me it's not a pen, well, okay, that's in your head. And this comes down to what's masculinity. There are objective parameters that masculinity fits into and say from culture to culture, the other side of the planet, wherever, this is going to be universally recognized as masculinity, as what is masculine. So that my whole thing for the last several weeks, what I talked to my own son about is this is masculine. This is what this means. What does it mean to be a man? What is masculinity? And has it always been the same definition? Is it changing? Is it fluid? That gets into why I always make a point, I've already mentioned it here, is I'm not getting into what is a good man and I'm not getting into what is a real man. There is an objective definition of what it means to be masculine. 
And as such, there can be no other definition. What is a good man or a real man can change cross-culturally over time and so on. But what is masculine in and of itself cannot change. It was the same a thousand years ago. It'll be the same a thousand years in the future. Can't change. And that's at odds with social constructionism, which is what we're talking about, really, that what's going on in the modern world right now. And, you know, all this stuff is subjective. And the APA tells in their guidelines says, you know, it's problematic. And these young men, they need to be able to come up with their own definitions. Well, they can't come up with their own definitions until they destroy the objective definition, which is my micro or my camera stand here is sitting on a 1955 Oxford Universal Dictionary. And I bought that 20 years ago because they did not just start changing language yesterday. They've been doing that for a long time. And so I have a number of old dictionaries and thesauruses. And you're familiar with my content. I get into synonyms and, you know, what what is vulnerability and so on. What is masculine is, this is what you're going to get in the dictionary, just about any dictionary. What is masculine or what is masculinity? It's that which pertains to being a man. And so the, dic- the dictionary definition really doesn't give you a lot to go off of, right? Well, what pertains to a man? So you have to start looking at it and you can say, you and I both have beard. I understand there's the exceptional woman out there that can grow a beard naturally. Something's hormonally wrong there, of course, but let's just take out such outliers. Women don't have beard. Women are physically weaker. A woman can be relatively strong, but she's not going to be as strong as a man. Women are not as competitive, just naturally. Are there competitive women? Sure. Generally speaking, are women as competitive as men? Absolutely not, not even close. The physical strength, we're physically tougher, and that's a testosterone thing. I used the example last night. Every this is anecdotal, but everybody I know that has a male dog that's medium sized to especially large dog, if they have a male dog that's not fixed and they try to do those invisible fences <laughs> and they put those collars on them, not the big heavy duty training collars for hunting dogs. Right. They blow right through them, man. I've never known. I've known eight or nine people over the last 15 years, and they say, nope, if you have a male dog, just put a fence up. And even then, that's not always going to work because testosterone raises your threshold for pain, right? And so we have, there's physical strength, there's toughness, we're competitive, and we get into other, some other stuff too as far as respect and honor, but that's, a, that's a, not quite as universal to, to masculinity in and of itself. But the thing that I've been getting on a lot more even lately is the stoic command of, of emotion. I might be wrong. It's hard to quantify, but I think the largest or the most consistent attack on masculinity comes at how we're supposed to act emotionally. Because it's a given, you're not going to change. I'm six foot tall, 195 pounds, good shape. You can't change that. You can't make this feminine, okay? Although they're attacking even the idea of working out now, but that's that's an aside. But what can they change? Well, they can try to change our masculine behavior. And so if they can attack masculine behavior at the core, which is to say, how are you going to handle stress? How are you going to handle social interactions in general? So on and so on. And the main thing I see, and you're familiar with my content, the main thing I see is the vulnerability topic. And then secondarily, being emotion open, emotional IQ, which is a real thing, but the way it's applied in, in this in this context is it's not properly applied, I would say. And I can tell you, I was one of those people that was on the vulnerability bandwagon there for a while because I ran into Brene Brown's content and a lot of it resonated me for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Listened to several of her books. She was at a book signing and this man came up to her and explained to her, you know, how convenient it is for you to not uh, talk about Yeah. And and so it's a great story, but there's so, there was so much truth behind that statement. We all feel that emotion. We know what that feels like. They would rather see you die on that horse than to show any type of emotion 
or lack of emotional control because they were never raised in an environment where they were able to experience that, where a lot of times they come from an environment where their dad was closed off or they had large emotions all the time. And so they just don't know how to make space if somebody were to be vulnerable per the definition of Brene Brown and her group. I did a clip once with Brene on Brene Brown. And this is kind of to get into how absurd the whole the whole message is. She gets up and I think it's a TED talk or something. And she gets up and she said, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly how she said it, but she said it is a myth. It's a dangerous myth that people think vulnerability and weakness are synonymous. And I'm like, let me go get my thesaurus. You know, I, we have this on the printed page. That That's so, and then people just go, oh, okay, it's Brene Brown. You know, and so even apart from everything else we're talking about, any worldview, any dogma, anything that somebody's trying to push, if you have to literally make up meaning, new meaning, your own private interpretation to a word, you're wrong right off the bat. If, if, if my whole view on masculinity rests on me somehow saying that two plus two equals five, if you've ever read anything on logic, okay, the, the premise is everything. And if you really get into a, an argument or a debate with somebody that's maybe a little emotional, it's hard to keep up with them. And like, if you step back and look at what are we arguing about, you need to identify the premise. Is the premise correct? And so Brene Brown and whoever else is saying this, when you say that vulnerability and weakness are not synonymous, over, game over, you, you, you just build everything you're saying on a false premise. To me, I mean, anybody that's a clear thinker, anybody that wants to be a rational thinker, you just have to stop right there and go, if you have to, if you have to literally throw out the thesaurus and the dictionary to make your point, then game over. Of course, people aren't going to listen to that. So moving forward to kind of what you'd said, you know, you're in that camp for a little bit. That comes from the fact that the idea of what everybody's being told nine times out of 10, when I ask somebody, men, when they argue with me on, on my account about what vulnerability is, I, I, I try not to argue, but I say, you tell me what's what's this look like? What, what, what does it look like for me as a man to be vulnerable? Nearly every single time they describe what we would recognize as being emotionally intimate. Correct. And I'll point that out to them and I go, you just, you know, what you described. And they go back and forth a little bit and I say, okay, now look up in the dictionary or the thesaurus. Intimacy. There's no negative connotation. There's no negative synonyms that are connected to weakness, vulnerability, not fear of being harmed, but the ability to be. There's nothing, nothing whatsoever about being intimate that exposes me to harm. Zero. And so the whole message has been they sell it as intimacy and guys like, yeah, I want to be intimate with my ch emotionally into with my children, with my wife or girlfriend, whatever it is. Sure. We have connections. We have emotions. Okay. Here's, I'll give, I'll give my own argument. If everybody has a misunderstanding of what vulnerability is and it's really intimacy, why not just leave it alone? Because it doesn't stop right there. And so when you let this Orwellian manipulation of language continue down that path, what they do is now vulnerability intimacy opens up to being more emotionally open. And even something that I see as a very valid emotional IQ, you know, emotional intelligence, rather. Emotional intelligence is simply, in a shorthand version, emotional intelligence is basically emotional maturity and maybe some social skills. And I, I know I'm oversimplifying that. But the way it's applied here is you need, as a man, your emotional intelligence, your emotional openness, your vulnerability needs to match that of the feminine. Because every time, and I... I don't want to call a bunch of people out and start some online battle, or whatever, but there are some popular therapists on the different social media platforms that they, they sound, you know, I went, I, I roasted a couple of them once or twice 
And I went to their accounts and I was just like, all right, let's do this. I'm going to go after these guys. But, you know, honestly, um, even uh, Cohen, I don't remember his first name, 80% of what I find him talking about, it's, it's not that far off. You do it enough, though, and you get into it, and eventually they're talking social constructionism. They're talking vulnerability. They're talking men need to. This guy, Cohen, and he, we were going back and forth this a few months ago, and I have it clipped, and, and it was, it was. I thought it was ugly. He didn't think anything about it. He said, um, finally now, 2023, we're at the point that we can reintroduce men into what it means to be a good human being, which means by default, men are not good humans. Not good humans, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> All right. Men just by default are not, not good human beings. Emotional intelligence properly applied. And I, I understand it. it's a it's an oversimplification, but it's it's emotional maturity and the ability, this is what I, what I call basic social skills, the ability to understand what's going on. I learned, I was married for 22 years, and we can joke about it, make memes about it, but I learned don't give a woman a solution if she just needs to vent a little bit. And I'm not making fun of that. It just is what it is. If your girlfriend or wife come home, comes home from work and they're in a bad mood, something bad happened at work, don't sit there and go, well, you know, honey, this is probably what was, you know, because it, it comes across to them as argumentative, just commiserate with them and let it go. And what that is, that's a that's a, a degree or a slice of emotional intelligence. So part of what you were you were kind of describing right there is just basic social skills, emotional maturity, and how to get there. And the, the other aspect um, that, that made me think of is the stoic command of emotion from the masculine side means if I had a bad day and she had a bad day and we come home and I want to vent and she wants to vent, the stoic command of emotion is I recognize that she is a more emotional creature. Women are, I know. Radioactive to say that in 2023, women are more emotional. Well, that's what we're supposed to be like, right? We're supposed to be more emotionally open. If we're both had a bad day at work and I have stoic command of my emotion, I should, and this is the vulnerability part, do I, am I vulnerable now? Or do I say, wait a minute, this is her time. We both had, let's just say we both had an equally bad day at work. This is her time. And I shouldn't come home and un unload on her because she is the more, I, I want to say emotionally weak, but if she's more emotionally open because she is the feminine and I'm the masculine. And I, without the emotional intelligence and without stoic command of emotions, as I talk about, I eat, okay, the opposite of stoic command of emotions being vulnerable as far as I'm concerned. Right. So if I'm going to be vulnerable and we both come home with the bad day at work and we both want to vent a little bit, well, now we're in conflict. The, the stoic command that I keep mentioning, now I'm, I'm in charge of my emotions and as bad as my day was, I'm not going to shut her down. I'm not going to ignore my emotional intelligence and try to give her solutions that she doesn't want. She just needs somebody to commiserate with right now. And so all of this kind of rolls back into whether you, you want to label it under vulnerability, whether you want to label it under uh, emotional intelligence and so on. That's why I've been talking so much about this stoic command is if I have control or command of my emotions and I know that my wife or girlfriend, obviously she's the feminine. Now I'm in a position that it's not vulnerability, it's control. When I need to vent about something, when I need to open up about something, I can do so in a controlled measure. Just like anger and lust and many other things, by the way. Because we don't want those things just uncorked. So what got you started on making content on TikTok? What was the motivation for that? Up until probably early 2022, I had an Instagram account that I rarely used. And I used to post my, uh, I used to be a freelance illustrator years ago. And 
I had briefly got on Instagram, so on and so on. Point is, is I really wasn't a social media guy. I'm 52 years old. You know, I'm an old Archie Bunker kind of curmudgeon. And I'm, I'm not on Facebook. I don't, whatever. And a girlfriend said, you need to get on TikTok. Because when we go out, and this, you know, might sound like I'm patting myself on the back. But the guy you see in the videos, and I guess the reason I've been moderately successful is that people just come up to me. I, I have a certain charisma, a certain confidence. And wherever we would go out, people just come up to me. And I make friends everywhere I go. I always wind up kind of low-key helping people, especially younger people. And they'll come up and we get into a conversation about whatever. And it eventually turns into me basically giving them some advice. Not, not a... I preach you, hey, you know what you need to do? I, that's not me. I don't do that. I ask them questions and I go, but I, I should mention I'm a backslidden preacher. <laughs> um, I'm still a Christian. I, I'm not as churched up as I once was. And I, I wasn't full time, but I, I spent quite a bit of time in the pulpit. So that's, I guess it's all tied together. My own talents or skills and, and you know, the personality that would do that to begin. Oh, it's that sense of service. Yeah. And so, yeah, she was like, hey, do this. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. I made a couple TikTok accounts. I didn't want to just jump in and have a hundred posts that sucked <laughs> and I would regret ever making. And so what I did, my first account, I did not only, but I did mainly Jordan Peterson clips. And then that got canceled. I got TikTok just wiped me out. I had 120,000 likes. I'd only been on it for like a month or so. So I was doing really well. I knew how to edit. I knew the, the material you know, and I went up getting whacked on that one. Um, I did another one where I did a bunch of Rolo Tomasi red pill stuff. Well, of course, I get up 80, 90, 100,000 likes. That gets whacked. You know, it's easy to get in trouble on TikTok. Yeah. And then I did a third one, and I won't even use the phrase. I'll text you later. They're not bad words, but this is social media. Who knows? Well, okay, I can say it like this. Do not put the words false and the other word flag. Do not put that anywhere on TikTok. No warning. Gone. Gone. And I was talking about something was going on politically. I wasn't a political thing. And so I'm like, I'm kind of not really upset that I was at each one of these three accounts. In the third account, I was doing just all my own stuff. And that was success for the most part. And so I thought, all right. And I was literally grilling some steaks on like a Friday night, Friday dinner. And I had a little glass of bourbon with me and just I'm on my second drink. And had this little camera deal set up in the little workshop and walked in there. And between flipping the steak and doing whatever, I just would start telling bartending story. And this was maybe my third post. It goes viral. You know, it's one of those things where you wake up in the morning like, holy smokes. And from there, it just developed into, I thought I was going to talk mostly about masculinity, which is what I still try to focus on. But I wind up getting into a lot of the relationship stuff because... Let's face it, eventually that's where the rubber meets the road. You know, most guys don't want to sit here and listen to you, me and you talk about the definition of what it means to be objective. You know, I feel like I need to lay some foundational things when we're talking about things, but really that's pretty boring. What do they want to know, depending on where they're at in life? Well, I want to get laid. Okay, that's not really what I'm talking about. Well, I want a wife. Okay, it's a little closer. But eventually this whole war on masculinity, and there's there's an attack on femininity too, fair enough. Um but this whole war on gender and traditional roles of men and women in society, it's not too dramatic to say it. It's ripping people apart. It's ripping families apart. It's ripping couples apart. It's ripping relationships apart. And so as I dove in and started to try, try and talk about masculinity itself, the details of how these men want to know how to apply that masculinity is I need a woman. And I don't mean that in a crude way. I need a woman. I want a woman. I want a relationship. I want to come home to somebody. 
that's not some boss babe ran through checked out nutty chick how do i find that all right so here we are talking about the stuff we talk about what is a definition of masculinity shortest version i can do is from the oxford dictionary or any other dictionary those things which pertain to a man what pertains to a man we have certain physical traits um again leaving out the outliers we have great much greater physical strength bodily we are physically tougher because of higher testosterone we have beards we we are more competitive we're more aggressive we are more assertive make a mental note about aggressive because we're talking about emotional command so i'm competitive i'm i'm aggressive i'm assertive if my testosterone's a certain way and i'm healthy uh, I'm, I'm a take no shit kind of guy and you need that because we're the provider protector now can all of that or any of that be applied to women. No, actually, no. Can a woman be competitive or physically strong or physically tough relative for a woman? Sure. Can the average, everybody's healthy, physically healthy, everybody's mentally healthy. Let's just make it a standard model, apples to apples. Can a woman be physically strong as compared to a man? Nope, not at all. Nope, not physically, not physically as tough, not as physically as strong, nowhere near as competitive, no. And so these are things that you go cross-culturally, across time, centuries and what would any other culture understand about what is masculine he's physically strong he's competitive he has command of his emotions he has that's the, what i was talking about earlier he is doesn't have to be outright silent stoic type but the stoic so i talked about this last night stoicism stoicism is a philosophy that's not what a stoic command of emotion means to say something is stoic is an adjective Leave the philosophy aside, and I'm not against it, but leave that aside. What it means to be stoic and have a stoic command simply means it's controlled, it's measured, it's not going to fly off the handle, right? E equanimity. Yeah, good word. There you yeah. go. Yeah, that's nice. And so what is the definition is these things that pertain to a man, what pertains to a man. And I'm still working on a, an exhaustive list because where I keep getting tripped up at is should it be things that can only be applied to the man and not the woman now because think about physical strength well think about courage you know uh, jack donovan talks about that pretty well in his first book think about courage a man is expected to have courage so if you or i are out and about complete strangers around us there's an attacker a natural disaster something there's danger afoot you're the only male there there's a handful of women and children and of course, there's surveillance cameras watching you. <laughs> you don't want your legacy to be the guy that ran faster than the women and the children. You want to be your legacy, whether you survive this natural disaster or this danger. You want it to be that you try to save everybody. You as a man will be judged by the courage that you show. And this is a, the, the example I'm getting to is can women or even children, can women be courageous? Sure. Nobody's faulting the women for running from the danger. Nobody faults them. If the woman is courageous and stands up and, you know, stands up to the danger, it is exceptional. So what is exceptional for the feminine courage it is expected baseline fundamental. That's what we're supposed to do. And I'm glad you mentioned Jack Donovan because uh, in his book, The Way of Men, he mentions male initiation rights. And I feel it's one of those things that's missing the raising of young men today. They're, they're not going through that initiation. Can you explain what that is and just what it looks like? The male initiation, right? What always pops in my mind is Lord of the Flies, which is male initiation gone perversely wrong. But uh, um, 
male initiation, and I've talked about this a little bit on some other podcasts, but think about how we're little boys are rough. And if you leave little boys, Lord of the Fly stuff, if you leave little boys alone long enough in a group, it gets pretty brutal. So it doesn't have to start with an initiation of some sort of organized culture or sport or or military or whatever it is. That's what both that's what boys do. And it's kind of them hammering out the the the, the pecking order. Here's alpha, here's you know, here's the hierarchy. If you've got five little boys, they're, they're all six years old. You leave them alone long enough, they're going to figure that out. They really do naturally. And so the, the initiation rites, we'll call it, these things rise up because that's what men naturally do anyway. Okay. So I feel like I, one of the, one of the greatest benefits I had growing up was just sports. And I, I don't worship sports and celebrities and all that. But man, just growing up, and I mentioned it in a recent post, I had these old school coaches they were they were old for the day you know they were korean war veterans they weren't even vietnam veterans they were korean war veterans right ass you know they were carrying like bars and you know uh m1s and these guys are just tough and you know you could fart or burp in practice i'm nine years old if you farted or burped it, that's okay that's what that's natural if anybody giggled take a lap right <laughs> So there's little things. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, Coach Angle. He 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 wasn't my only coach, but he was my favorite. Coach Angle was this old Korean War guy, and somebody fart really loud, and he'd go, he'd look around, and we're like, shut, you know, and, don't do it. <laughs> and we can laugh at that, but that's the beginning or the initial for a child, anyways. That's the beginning of an initiation. Discipline. Yeah, yeah. I'm with the team because we all took a lap. It wasn't that one guy. Everybody took a lap. Fast forward that to Paris Island in 1988. We all get punished when this guy does a certain thing. And this is where the initiation thing comes in. And speaking of Jack Donovan, he talks about, I'm not super read up on all this stuff. I've read, I've listened to his first book. I've downloaded the others. I haven't listened to him yet. But it's the first half of his first book I keep going over and over again. That's what fascinates me. Anyway, to that point, when he talks about the perimeter and what we expect of one another, if we're in somehow some kind of prepper situation or natural disaster or whatever, if you're my neighbor and I've got a neighbor over here, Aaron, you, me, and Aaron, we're going to team up and we're going to be on the perimeter. We're going to be taking care of things. Well, I've got a couple other neighbors over here, and I won't mention my name, nothing anybody knows them, but they're complete physical slobs, Right. They're going to die first, and we're not going to put them on the perimeter because we'll all die if they're on the perimeter, right? And that's where the initiation comes from, whether I'm in Little League or I'm in yeah, Paris Island, right? We have these things where we all take a lap because Jason laughed when I farted. <laughs> That'll make a clip, <laughs> right? You, if you'd laugh because I did this, and we all have to get kind of low-key punished for that, that makes us accountable to one another. And that's what my whole thing was building up to, that the initiation, it brings us in so I can trust you. When we're on the perimeter, when we're in danger or a baseball game, now I can trust you to do the right thing. You're not going to screw up because we're all held accountable one to the other, right? That, and that's the big thing. You, if you watch some of these different movies where they talk about Marine Corps boot camp, um, and I'm not going to run down my Marine Corps. Loved it, but it, it's a real thing. You watch Full Metal Jacket. That's it wasn't exactly like that for me, but it was pretty pretty close. We had a guy that kept getting sent. We call sent back. 
he was on medical, had some issues. I don't know his whole story. But if you can't keep up with the platoon, but whatever's going on, it's not an automatic, you know, kick you out. They'll just set you back a little bit. And so we get this guy, long story short was, he was some kind of psychological case. Like literally he was told not to try to join the military at all, much less the Marine Corps. And he wound up getting sent off on some kind of psychological thing. But up to that point, he was such a screw up and he had screwed up so many things. I didn't hear anybody threatening. I was a squad leader, so maybe they just didn't tell me because they weren't going to tell the squad leaders this. But they were they were afraid of enough, afraid enough for this man's safety that they put a, a, a guard on him 24-7, that the rest of the platoon would not come in harm, right? That's Lord of the Flies. That's Lord of the Flies is initiation gone to an extreme. And right. so if you get if you would have found me and, and this is any uh, Marine asthma. If you had got a hold of us at halfway through second, there's three phases, halfway through second phase or later. And they, you know, they said, hey, you know, you got to do this for your senior drill instructor, you know, commit some heinous crime. We'd have been like, all right, <laughs> we'd have done it. And if you didn't, if you weren't on board, well, you're going to have trouble with that, which all gets gets all back to what I was saying is the initiation right is, are you accountable to us as a group? Are you accountable to us as a tribe of men? Can I put you on the perimeter and trust you? And we've got a little bit of far foot from the actual definition of what it means to be masculine. I think this conversation has developed well in that we got into the initiation thing, right? And so if we keep it at what I've been doing lately, the objective definition of what it means to be masculine, there's no good man or real man kind of definition that defines whether or not Ray or Jason can be on the perimeter. Well, there's there's just men and there's characteristics that we're going to expect you to meet. And that strength, courage, mastery and honor. Yes. And these are the things that you want to cultivate within not only yourself, but within your cohort, within your group. Yes. And so that's one of those things that's missing currently uh, as young men are growing up. I, I get a lot of messages and I'm sure you do as well. This overarching theme of just not being enough. They're struggling. They're going through difficult times. They don't feel useful. There's a lot of hopelessness being expressed in the things that they're saying. And a lot of it is because of uncertainty. They don't know where they're going, what they're doing, uh, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. And they don't have a specific direction of, of what's next for them. For, so for somebody who's in that place where they're, they're feeling hopeless, they don't know what the next step is, what is some advice that you would give to them to really just kind of get started on finding either purpose or direction or just functionality in society? A lot of people think it sounds overly man up, level up kind of stuff, but men need to do things that involve action. And I recently posted something. Um, I need to dig into this more. Joe Rogan had talked about a little bit, a, a study out of a, a university in Australia, and it showed that exercise in general was one and a half times more effective for various disorders, mental disorders, than therapy and or medication, right? I've been saying this for a long time without research behind me, but I just know from, from basic life experience when a man gets busy and gets healthy, all that stuff fades away. And you look at testosterone levels, right? I probably recommended Anthony, Dr. Anthony J's book literally a hundred times on my account. He, he owes me royalties now, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but he has a book called Estrogeneration, 
And short version of that, not to be too boring, but he gets into all the plastics and the endocrine disruptors that are in our food and all these different things and phthalates and BPH and or BPA and all these different things. And they weren't able, they were not able to measure testosterone or hormones until the 1940s. And so they started measuring hormones in the 1940s and the average man. Now the average man was smoking two packs of unfiltered cigarettes, right? He was not a vegan or a carnivore or anything in between. This guy was not a health nut and his average testosterone levels were on 800 nanograms per deciliter. All right. Today, depending on if you look at research that is age specific or which group's doing it, the average testosterone a day of a man is between three and 500. That's, and I get stuff on my account all the time. Guys are telling me they're down around 200. There's women at 200, right? And so once you're below, and there's no magic number, it does very little bit individual and individual, but once you're below 600, you're not the man you're supposed to be. And I'm not saying if you go get your testosterone check and it's not six or 700, that you're not a man. Don't get me wrong. Go talk to a perimenopausal or menopausal woman and ask her, do hormones affect your moods? Do hormones affect how you think? Do hormones affect how you feel? Of course, going from 400 nanograms per deciliter of testosterone to 1,200, which right age, right health profile you should be at, of course, it's going to affect how you think. And so like what you were getting into is like guys feeling hopeless. And I'm not saying it all comes down to testosterone, but it's a good fundamental place, place to start. Yeah, yeah, you start there. And I've made multiple posts. I've made multiple posts that, I mean, I get a lot of kickback on it. I've never said don't get therapy at all. I said therapy should not be your first resort because you can get blood work back in 24 hours, right? Therapy is going to take a while. Let's just go ahead and assume you found the, you find the best therapist available and they have your best interest and not their boat payment in, in mind. Right. And I get it. You help people. I'm not, I'm not, this well, is- and it's like, look, you, you want to do all these things in tandem. You can do that. That's totally fine, but do them. Yeah. <laughs> Show sure. up and do it, make it happen. And so hormones obviously affect how we, how we think and feel. And so the first thing you can do, especially because it, it's so fast Get your hormone regard, you know, 30 years ago, we would have made it told a 40 or 50 year old man, get your hormones checked. If you're in your 20s and you think you have a, you feel like you have a, a problem with anxiety or depression, get your testosterone checked. I've never read anything that links these two things together. So I'm being careful how I say this. Right. I'm smarter than the average bear. I'm old enough. I've been around. I'm not stupid. I, I've been a gym rat all my life. I'm telling you. If you look at the big five personality test, ocean, and everybody knows, every serious clinician understands that it is a, a, it's a good personality test. You probably already know this, but it records everybody together. It doesn't compare men to men and women to women. It compares the whole population. Okay. You can break it out by male and female, but here's the important part. Men are much less neurotic than women on average. They just are. Why would that be? What's the biggest difference between men and women? And being neurotic, of course, is sensitivity to negative emotions, right? If I'm walking around 1,300 nanograms per deciliter and the average woman's, I don't know, it varies obviously throughout the month. Let's just say 150. That's kind of high, but it's a good number. 150 to 1,200. I think we're going to think a little differently on things. 
right? We're going to feel differently on some things. I've taken the big, I took Jordan Peterson's big five personality test. How my, that? My, my score for neuroticism was the fourth, per, fourth percentile. So that means 96 other people in the room out of 100, 96 other people in the room are more neurotic than I am. So even with that knowledge, I'm careful in how I talk to people because even for a man that's pretty low neuroticism, meaning you can call me all kinds of names, you can insult my mom, and I just go, mm, there you go. But I understand everybody's like that. But getting, getting back to my Yeah, original, but doesn't that also come with age? Yeah, but you've never been able to hurt my – I, okay, here's my thing. My family, you have to know, side note, both men and women and both sides of my family are strangely cold. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing. I'm just I'm just acknowledging the fact that we're all different, but at a larger scale that men just are not supposed to be neurotic. Negative emotions or negative things in general, they're not supposed to have that large of a reaction on us, at least not compared as to a woman, right? And so if the average testosterone today is a third of what it should be, just going off historical measures, well, yeah, you, you you're walking with a third, you're walking around with a third of the testosterone you should have, right? So negative emotions, you're going to be more neurotic. Negative emotions, you're going to be more sensitive to negative emotions. And now where's that leave the guy that whether he's 22 or 52, where's that leave the guy? He's, he should have, if he was healthy and his life was not inundated with plastic and soy and endocrine disruptors which and, it's almost impossible these days to stay away yeah. from any of it yeah you'd have to live on a desert island somewhere in the south yeah. and even then you know if somebody probably tested a bomb there you'd be screwed but what are you going to do your testosterone should be let's just say 800 it's a nice even sort of high-ish number it should be 800 but now it's 300 well how are you going to relate to life in general the negative emotions, the negative things are coming up, coming up in life, you're not going to relate to it the same. Again, if that sounds like some guy just talking about testosterone, find yourself a perimenopausal woman and ask her how she's doing. And then step two to all that would be to follow Lane Norton and Andrew Huberman as yeah. a means of getting additional information that's going to be helpful to you with all of that. And the, the only thing I would add is get your B12 checked as well. Yeah. And Huberman is probably the second most recommended uh, source that I get. He, he talks a lot. He has a lot of good podcasts on muscle building in general and hormonal optimization. So uh, the, the, I only take two supplements and it's because he, I knew they were good before he got into it, before I heard him, but he went so far as to figure out which brands were best because supplements, you don't know. Yeah. Tone got Ali. And are you doing ashwagandha? Or are you doing the, the other one, the Tone got Ali? Yeah. Fidogia Agrestis by uh, Barlow's. So, and so how has that been treating you? How long have you been you, taking it? You can feel, I know the research is solid and I work out and I overall, so I'm not saying it doesn't work if you take whatever supplement, it could be just very, very incremental to feel a thing. So the Tonkat the Ali, you don't feel that right away. I take it anyway because I know the research is, you know, whatever, and I feel good overall. The uh, Fidoja Agrestis, you can feel that. You can, you can absolutely, I mean, it's a boom. It's in, for those that don't know, Fidoja Agrestis, it actually uh, helps your gonads produce more 
I think the, the direct action is more follicular. Yeah, I'm forgetting all my terms, but yeah, it, it produces, if I'm getting this, if I remember correctly, it produces more follicular whatever, which helps produce more testosterone in your gonads. And then of course, that's gonna be more testosterone. And if you look up Huberman and supplements, you'll find where he talks about that. And it could be three or 400% increase in testosterone. But that's the one thing that Fidocia aggresses. You can take that and literally within a few hours, you're like, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't... I didn't t start taking that because of the response that the reaction other people were having as you go through and you read down the list. So understand guys, this isn't medical advice by any means. Um, so yeah. dis disclaimer out there, make sure you do your research check with your doctor before you start anything new. But did you have any reaction to the Fedosia? Mm -mm, not at all. More aggression. Hence the name. <laughs> and that gets back to stoic command of emotion, right? <laughs> I wasn't in traffic yelling at people. I just felt good. How would you tell a young man that you're giving advice to, to accomplish that? How can they be the person that someone else would actually want to be with? So it's kind of a golden rule sort of thing, right? Golden rule being treat your neighbor as you'd like to be treated. This sort of, at least in my mind, overlaps with, you know, I mentioned the personality test thing. And I noticed a lot with who's conscientious and who's not conscientious. Okay. So shorthand for everybody that doesn't want to get too deep into that, the opposite, and this isn't perfectly true, but for shorthand, it is the opposite of selfish is to be conscientious. Okay. A truly deeply selfish person gives no shits about anybody for anything. In a truly selfish person, what most people think are narcissists, they're not narcissists, That's leave that to clinicians. Um, a true selfish person cannot be dealt with, and I'm talking extremes here. A very conscientious person wants to treat you well, okay? So as you go through life and you start to see things, and the people you like and the people you admire, and the people that you would like to be around, what you're going to find, what normal people are going to find is, look at them they're mostly very conscientious people it doesn't mean they're doormats it doesn't mean they don't have assertiveness or aggressiveness it means they are going to do the right thing for the right reason so i mentioned the big five <clears throat> sorry about that i mentioned the big five personality test and i scored very very high on conscientiousness but i scored very very low on compassion like if you read just the compassion part, I sound like a serial killer. It's bad. <laughs> I showed it to my kids and they're just laughing because they always said, dad's no chill. Dad's right. But I said, but look at this conscientious score. It's like 90, whatever, some percentile. I said, what that means is if you come to me to, with a campaign to save the kittens, you don't have to give me a cute video. You don't have to give me a big story. Just tell me why I need to save the kittens. And if the kittens really need saved, I'll give you some money. We'll save the damn kittens, okay? But what? that's the conscientiousness, right? The right. compassion's down here in, in the neuroticism. Don't give up. Are we, do we cuss? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, don't give a fuck about your cute kitten video. I, the compassion thing. And so the point is, is there's all these levels of, there's all these different degrees of what goes into somebody. So if you're going to be the person that somebody else wants to date, you have to first recognize who wants to date. And if the, your idea of who who's dateable has anything to do with stat, and status is going to come into it a little bit. But if the main 
focus on who's dateable, who, who you want to date, who, who somebody should want to date. If it's status and looks always, and those are important. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that, but if that's the main focus, well, that's not accurate. Who do people really want to be around? And you're going to find that they're conscientious. They're not necessarily soft. That's what I gave them an example. They're not necessarily soft, but they're conscientious. So how to be the person somebody else wants to date is recognize those people around you that other people want to be like or want to be with. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. No, I like that. And now I'm curious, of course, what is your agreeableness score? Because those are like the two major traits, the conscientiousness and agreeableness that Jordan likes to talk about. Overall, my agreeable, uh, my thing, yeah, it's politeness and compassion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was average, a little above average, actually, because I'm super polite. I'll go out of my way to be polite. That's probably overlaps with conscientiousness, you know, really. But yeah, just, just, just the compassion alone. My son looked at me, he goes, the, the description said something about not caring about other life. <laughs> like, wow, really? Wow. One of the things you talk a lot about on your account is hypergamy, or at least you did in the past. So what is hypergamy and what does it mean to someone who's, you know, in their early 20s and they're dating around and just trying to figure out the whole dating scene? Uh, I, use, I use the language of evolution and I'll just come out and say it. I'm a Bible guy. Here's the thing about Bible and evolution. If you chase both of them down to the end, you get the same result. Um, yep. But evolutionary psychology absolutely shows us what we all see in everyday life and know to be true, right? That we're still men and women. Forget all the other stuff we talked about earlier as far as social constructionism. A woman's a woman, a man's a man. I'm a provider protector. She's physically weaker. Our brains don't know that it's 2023. As far as our, our basic biological wiring is concerned, it, we could be cavemen. We could be in some super primitive situation and so hypergamy basically is that woman has to find the best genes for provider protector right and if you really look at it in a kind of a cold calculating way it can make women look opportunistic i don't think women are opportunistic all right uh, most rational people that understand what hypergamy is don't think that women are opportunistic however from that thirty thousand foot view the woman biologically speaking, is very opportunistic. Why does she prefer average woman? Why, do, why does she prefer a guy that's a little bit taller, a little more muscular, a little more competent, a little more symmetrical? Let's not even say handsome or attractive, symmetrical. Why? Better genes, simple as that. Who's the better provider and protector? That guy. The guy that's a little bit taller, a little bit stronger, a little bit smarter, competent, a little more symmetrical, good genes. Who's the better provider protector? That's hypergamy. And I've seen a lot of people on social media come up and say, do we still need hy hypergamy? That's the dullest statement I think I've heard in 20 years. Do we still need human nature? Do we still need ambition or greed? Do we still need kindness or or whatever? These, these are things of human, human nature. You can't adopt it or dismiss it. It is what it is. A woman is biologically wired to need the best that she can do, or at least to the best that she perceives it, that she can get. The guy may be a loser and she's been fooled, but she thinks that's the best I can get. I, I like what you said earlier about these things being part of who we are biologically from an uh, ancient perspective. Like we really haven't changed that much. No. And so you link that into 
the anxiety that young men are feeling today and that sense of hopelessness. Your brain is wired and your nervous system is wired for you to be on the lookout for danger. And when you live in a society and a culture where there's really not that danger, it doesn't exist and you play video games all day and there, there's not exactly a real threat anywhere around you, you're going to develop that level of anxiousness that gets yes. associated with that. And so I just think that's a nice way to you know tie those two things together. And the lack of, I don't know if I even finished my thought on that earlier, the lack of physical activity that um, the other part of being active and going to the gym and doing things is, I, I think we got off on just talking about hormones in and of itself, but I need to be pushed. I need to be challenged. I need to have something hard to do. Right. And so when I lift weights and I go to the gym uh, four days a week, I get up at three thirty in the morning. Now, I'm an early riser. Three um, thirty is rough. Don't get me wrong. But, I, you know, if you're not an early riser, figure out something that works for you. But I go to the gym very damn early. There ain't nobody there when I get there. OK. And you go to the gym really early and you're on the squat rack four oh five. You're just you're pumping it out. Right. See, there's on your headphones. You're like, get this. And then eat your breakfast and go about the day. I get to work. I've done so much. And I know Jocko and different people talk about this, but I've been doing this for 30 years. You get to the gym early enough and do something that's hard. It's a little bit uncomfortable, even getting up early. And you do that consistently. This is going to start to build things inside of you. Somebody asked me in my comment section today, how do I do this? They were talking about discipline in general. And I said, practice. You need to practice. You need to start doing things that you don't want to do. Get up early. Go to the gym. And I'm a big fan. And I'm not a black belt or anything. I'm not a huge fan of wrestling in general. I wrestled in high school. uh, But Brazilian jiu-jitsu is very popular. I like boxing more. And I'm not pitting the two against each other. I just enjoy boxing more. But, you know, get to a boxing gym. Get to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. Um, find an MMA school, you know, there, if you're in a bigger city, there's going to be some MMA, um, gyms in general, where you could do Muay Thai, BJJ, boxing, the the whole bit. If you consistently push and challenge yourself, somebody's punching you, it's in a controlled environment, but still you're, you're athletic. You know what it's like. It's just sparring. It's just practice. And you've been practicing a little bit on the backs, but Hey, it's your turn. Time to spar, put your headgear on. Somebody's going to try to hit you. Right. Well, you, you walk into that jujitsu gym, you're going to find out really quickly where your weaknesses are and where exactly. you struggle and, you know, the things that you have to work on. And so you get uh, that assessment rather quickly. It's day one, week one, and you know exactly where you stand and the road ahead of you. So, yeah, you know, doing those hard things is important. You're building resilience. You're building mental toughness. And so on a, the, the terms of mental health, and I, I'm very solid in this belief, and I'm not saying nobody should ever get therapy, and, and this is, you know, we discussed a little bit earlier. First thing, get your testosterone check, fine. Next thing, are you in the gym? Are you active, right? So within a couple, three days, five days, give it a week, you can get your blood work done, you know where your hormones are at. You can join a gym. You can join multiple gyms. You can be rolling on the mat or sparring in the ring within a few days. If you get that three, again, I'm not saying don't do therapy, but you can have all that done. I mean, the full thing, you got your gear, you're sparring a little bit, you're rolling on the mat, you're, you're learning how to bench press if you don't already know how, you know where your testosterone's at. You can have all that done within a week or two, right? 
And if, you, if a man starts to do that, because our say what you want, my parents' generation, grandparents' generation, they didn't have the anxiety and the depression that men have today. Why? Well, they had to do hard shit. Oh, they didn't have the luxury for it. Yeah, they didn't drink Starbucks out of a paper cup, plastic line, having their testosterone drain through, drain out of their body, right? Anyway, yeah, so th there's so much to do. Be active, challenge yourself, push yourself. Don't live a comfortable life. I, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but... Well, when you do those things, you end up living a more fulfilled life. Hell yeah. And chicks dig it, bro. Me and my son were always deeply into motocross. We used to ride out in the desert for nice. every weekend. And there was, I can't, uh, I think it was Aaron Plessinger, I think who it was. Motocross guys, I'll recognize the name. Aaron Plessinger in this well-known video, somebody asked him why he was pursuing motocross so, so fervently back in the day. And he just looked up, shirt off, and he goes, chicks dig it bro and it was the funniest line and for to this day when me and my son now 21 years old we were just joking around we go chicks dig it bro that's what you do what is the difference between a good man and a nice guy knowing that we don't talk about good men versus bad men versus whatever but i think it's important to understand the difference between the two so a good man is and i'm a christian and this will obviously can vary a little bit by culture certain different different cultures different times, we could maybe make some different delineation of what is good. But let's say we understand there is a, a universal nature to morality, theft, murder, adultery, so on, so on. We understand these things. And so a good man is going to be a man that you can trust. He's not going to take your wife or try to hit on your girlfriend, whatever. He's not going to take your stuff, so on down the line, some basic fundamentals, right? That's a good man. And if you want to take it to kind of a next level, what's a good man is, is that a friend? Is that somebody that's going to do the right thing when nobody else is around? And so you could go on down, we could come up with a million different examples. You could go on down the line of how well does he show his character when he has an option to, does he hit on your girlfriend when he has a chance, right? Does he help an old lady when nobody else is around to see him, he knows there's no reward in it. He picks up, somebody dropped their wallet. He picks that up and does the right thing for it, right? So on and so on. And I've heard old, I don't know if anybody ever, I've heard a number of old preachers say that the true test of character is how a man acts when nobody else is around to see it. Cross-culturally, that's probably the best thing you could say, that's a good man. I did the right thing when nobody else was around to see it. I took the high road, right? versus what is a real man I, I don't think there's a definition of what a real man is that's so subjective it's not even to be considered so the difference between good man and nice guy is and again highly subjective but you and i understand what we're talking about in this genre on social media and the way people speak of the nice guy that nice guy is going out of his way really whether he's conscious of it or not that nice guy is going out of his way to be manipulative He's trying to get to the girl by being the nice guy, right? And I posted, it was a pretty popular post at the time, probably last summer. Um, I walked into, I walked into, I walked up to a table. I worked at the bar. I walked up to a table, two gorgeous blondes, just smoke shows. I'm barely 21. These girls are a few years older, just, just piping hot. And there's four or five good-looking college guys. This is Southern California, Goat Hill Tavern, Orange County, if you know it. Fun place to be. 
And so I come up, get in the glasses. I'm the bar back at the time. I'm 21, get in the glasses. And it's hard to explain. I did the post. It was, it was hard to explain in short. But Patty, the girl I wind up dating, Patty was just kind of, picture Ellen Barkin at 25 with a better nose. I'm not lying. Dead nuts on, man. She was a, a, a cuter nose. Ellen Barkin, 25. And, and of course, everybody's Googling that right now. <laughs> they don't they don't know who that is <laughs> yeah I, I said i said as much in the original post and people like look that up yeah and so patty was just playing these guys and i walked up and she you have to i couldn't do her voice i'm not gonna try she's from boston i, I can never do it and, but she was playing these guys and i walk up i grab these things and she says whatever to me and i said save it for the college boys and she just looked at me like what and she was so so pretty and so used to getting her way and the short version of the story was I wound up dating her for a few months. Uh, she went back to Boston. I got in the Marine Corps. Um, but she said, and this was wisdom from a 25-year-old woman at the time, right? And I said, I forget how the whole thing came up, but she said those guys, I said something about those guys being too nice or too preppy or whatever it was at the time. And she goes, those nice guys they're, they come up like puppy dogs. And I remember exactly how I said it, but, or how I was phrasing it. She said, they're like puppy dogs. They're going to act all nice and innocent and sit there like, oh, pet me, I'm a little puppy. She goes, they want to get in my pants the same as everybody else. So when a guy like me comes up and I said, take a hike, babe. I, I'm not playing this game. You can't do that to me. And I walked off and she wound up following me to the bar and we talked and we went up dating. Why? Because the puppy dogs, the nice guys, were back over there trying to pretend. And that's the whole thing about a nice guy. It's more of a facade. And maybe there's some truly nice guys out there that aren't doing it consciously to manipulate. All right. I would still say they're still subconscious, subconsciously trying to manipulate. Why? They still want to get laid. They, they're still going out of their way to put the woman on the pedestal and kind of bow down and do all these different simp kind of sort of stuff. Well, they're, they're inauthentic to their intentions. Yes. Yes. So even if it's subconscious, it's still inauthentic. They're still just trying to get laid. Where if you, like Patty said to me, blah, 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 I go, take a hike. <laughs> you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm going to treat Patty well. And I did treat Patty well. But I'm not going to put up with all that other crap. And well, she's... you're you're kind and you use candor. True. And, yes. and you bring those two things together and, you know, Gar Gary V's book, 12 and a half, he talks a lot about kind candor and the benefits of it. But then you utilize that in relationships and you just automatically garner respect by being that type of person. Yes, there is the subconsciously nice guy and the consciously nice guy. The consciously nice guy would be more of a nefarious type of person, whereas the subconscious, not as nefarious, is still just trying to get laid. But they'll, they'll still go through the same emotions of, you know, I, I can't, I can never get a date. I can't find anybody. I'm always getting rejected. And they kind of go through the same thought process of, you know, th this constant rejection. It's, oh, and it's the guy that's going to be in the friend zone. And you can tell us what you think on can men and women be friends? No. Why? That's, women... always, that's always the first question. Why? Yeah. Women can be perfectly platonic. Men cannot, because I, a lot of people have said this. I wish I'd thought of it first. Men are not friends with unattractive women, or let's say better. I, I think I've heard it said better. Men are not friends with women they don't find attractive. 
women are only friends with guys they are not attracted to. Prove me wrong. <laughs> because if she's 300 pounds, and I'm not trying to be mean, but if she's th and there's exceptions out there, I get it. But generally, if she's just not attractive, not anybody you would ever in a million years want to have a physical relationship with, you're not going to be friends with her. You might be friendly with her. Well, and so that's the whole thing. You're, you're friendly and you're acquaintances. But that's not because people get people trip up on that language. No, yeah. we're talking friends. Are you texting me in the middle of the day? Are we going to get coffee later? Maybe a drink on the weekend as friends do. Right. I have plenty of female acquaintances. I have plenty of females that I'm friends with that I would do something for. I would do a favor. I would help them. I would whatever. But I'm not friends with them in the way that we're texting on a regular basis. Or we're going to go get coffee or a drink, whatever. That That's what friends do. And yeah, so I, I wish I knew who started that because I've heard enough people say that. I don't know who started it, but men are not friends with unattractive females. Women are only friends with men that friends that with men they find unattractive because if they were attractive, they wouldn't be, they'd be wanting them. Prove your own. Well, so then what about those cases where they go ahead and they try the relationship or they get into the relationship or it moves in it moves in that direction because you hear this a lot he wore me down well this is hard to quantify but um i would say that doesn't usually work i i would say it works very rarely in one of the more popular topics i get on in my um account my content if you're not first you're last <laughs> exactly now you, yeah you're last resort and yeah. i 52 years old and you know i don't want to come off as boisterous or uh you know hyperbole or whatever man i get a lot of attention now and god help me i got a lot of attention when i was younger i've had a lot of experience i've been around i've seen things and i i've been the guy the bartender the bouncer i've been there and done that and the guy that needs to win the girl over he works so hard at it and she seems to love it so much. And she comes back to the bar the next night and she's a totally different person. I, the, one of the main things I will tattoo this on somebody's back, not mine, but somebody, um, never ever win a girl over. If you have to win her over, nope. And, and, and you've seen enough of my content, but my go-to um, example, I think it's rock solid logic. But if you find your dream car, how hard does the salesman have to work on you to buy that car? Man, if you can afford it, you get, you know, you got the money in your pocket, you're buying that dream car. Nobody's working on you to buy that car. If the salesman has to go to work on you to buy that car, it's not what you really want. Simple as that. And so if anybody's winning somebody over or, you know, the, the relationship, to our, to our original point, the relationship started as a more platonic thing. Um, well, like we were saying, he's friends with her because she's attractive. He finds her attractive. She's friends with him because she was not initially attracted to him. And so they get a certain amount of familiarity and they, okay, let's try this. That's the salesman going to work on trying to sell the woman a car that she didn't initially want. And so... Let's say they date and get married and have kids. Sticking with the car analogy, she's going to, for the rest of her life, 
she's going to be driving through traffic. And when she sees the model of car that she really wanted, there's kind of a hole in her heart. That's what she really wanted. And God bless her if she makes it work and it's okay, but that's not what she really wanted. And do you want to be the guy that's not what she really wanted? Fuck that. Yeah, I'm actually seeing this with some of my coaching clients. They're, They're dating people that they wouldn't traditionally be interested in. And it ends up coming from a place of scarcity because, you know, the environment that they're in, whether it be through work or just their general sphere of influence, they're not having the connections or the networking opportunities out in the real world. And so they end up in a relationship with somebody that they may not necessarily be completely wholeheartedly interested in. And it's totally not fair to the other person, you know, because they're not honoring. And at the end of the day, they're also not honoring what they actually want internally. And so that's going to cause a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of conflict, and we, ha- we have to be aware of that and recognize that when you have that feeling that, like you said, use the car analogy where you have to be talked into something, then it's just not for you. Move on to something else. There's 8 billion people on the planet. At some point, if you're doing the things that you love to do, if you're out making those networking opportunities happen for yourself, I hate dating apps. I think they're useless. If you find them useful, use them, I guess, but get out in the real world and try to meet people that way. And you're going to have a lot better luck. Exactly. You know, for somebody that's an avid reader, I don't, I always recommend people read, period. Just read. And if a person, and I'll get into some specific things, I'm not going to leave that hanging. But first and foremost, if anybody, male or female, will adopt a habit of reading on a regular basis, What's going to happen, for me, it's a general interest. I'm just going to do it anyway. If you have to force yourself to do it and you're dedicated to do it, eventually it becomes a habit. And you read this book, and somewhere in that book, if, if I'm reading this book, it's going to lead to other topics and other interests. And so that's, that's the autodidact, you know, the self-taught. You're going to take this book to the next book to the next book to the next book. Now, I have a whole raft of books that I recommend to somebody. Um, on various topics. And I've, I've made a couple lists on that. And I'll mention a few, but just to make the fundamental point of read more now. And what that does is it sharpens up a person's vocabulary just from repetition. And another thing you didn't mention it, but another thing Jordan Peterson talks about is writing. Okay. So yes. I, have, I have a natural knack for writing. I've, I've published some articles in the past. Um, it's always seemed to come easy to me, but both sides of my family read. I grew up in a house with many books. I've always been a reader. So that's maybe why, I don't know. Uh, but what writing does, even if you never want to publish an article, what writing does, if you write uh, some every day and just write your thoughts. And I heard Jordan Peterson say this, and I didn't get this from him. I had already figured this out on my own. But when I used to preach, um, other preachers, older full-time preachers that come to me, they go, how'd you come up with that? How'd you pull that out of the Bible? And when I, this is an example, when I get into Bible study, but how writing affects your, your studying or your learning habits, I would get into the Bible. I've never, ever been one, oh, I need to read this whole chapter. I need to read this whole book. I would just start reading and looking for something interesting, something I wanted to study. Now I would read in, in order, but to the point is when I would come across something that was interesting, I would just stop and write out three or four verses. And I'd say, I'm going to write that in my own words. And the short version of what I'm getting at is when I would start to write this stuff out in my own words, my own understanding, it would start to pop. 
And that's what Jordan Peterson gets into is the more you write, you're refining your thoughts. You're refining the stuff out. Another side note, Winston Churchill. Um, yeah, prime minister of England, some other things. He primarily made his living uh, as an adult from his writing. I mean, he had somebody who's rich, you know, he had people follow him around. I mean, he wrote so much and he was so famous for having these really short, sharp quips. Like if you insulted him, he, he came back razor sharp. Why? He wrote constantly, right? And so it's this constant repetition of refining your thoughts and refining your thoughts and refining your thoughts. And you write, or as Churchill did dictate, but and you're constantly putting this stuff out. Or back to my Bible example, I'm reading this and I'm rewriting this. I'm reading this and I'm rewriting this. And I'm going to really grind down on what that what that really means. So if anybody is going to read on a regular basis and then write, whether it's, I, I hate the idea of journaling. I don't, that just sounds goofy. Shelby Foote, I don't think a lot of people are going to do this. A guy named Shelby Foote, he's long past, he wrote a three-volume series on the Civil War. And I have it on audio. All three volumes combined, 40 hours. <laughs> a lot of people aren't going to do that. But I'm just going to put it out there because I re-listen to that whole series at least once a year. All right. And again, I'm a natural reader. I don't have to force myself to do that. But in this touches on masculinity in and of itself. If you start to look at the personalities involved in Lincoln and Jefferson Davis and, you know, Ulysses S. Grant and George McClellan and all these different people, there's such a study. And I'll, there's such a study of masculinity in general and leadership in character, and I can shorten it up like this, and they're not the only good characters to study, but four important people in that whole story, Abraham Lincoln, Jefferson Davis, George McClellan, Ulysses S. Grant. So there were two really big failures in that war that didn't have to be, Jefferson Davis and George McClellan. Neither one of these guys had ever faced any real diversity, uh, adversity. Sorry. Neither one of these guys had, a, had any real failure or real pushback. They had some hard stuff, especially Jefferson Davis. But as far as just being educated and smart and having money and success and whatever they try to do, no setbacks, especially George McClellan. And they both failed because they were so prickly in their ego. And they were so, especially Jefferson Davis, they were so prickly in who they let come into them. They were so overly worried about personality and ego and loyalty that it screwed them, okay? George McClellan fell on his face. He was a brilliant man in business, but he failed. Why? He had no adversity. Whereas U.S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln had constant adversity, many failures. And so when they got to the point of their calling, let's call it, call it like that. When they got to the point of their calling, they didn't fail because they had failed before. And they had all these people coming at them. All these people with all these different opinions, and they didn't care about loyalty so much, and they didn't care about um, um, who was adhering to some doctrine of this or whatever. They were just going to get this thing fucking done, and they did. Okay, so if somebody has the stomach for the, the length of it, Shelby Foote, his three volume series in the Civil War. Other books, real quick: uh, The Black Swan, Nassim Taleb. Uh, Shop class is Soulcraft. I just looked at my bookshelf. Shop class is Soulcraft. Matthew B. Crawford. Uh, and honestly, I know not everybody's on board with it, but Rollo Tomasi, The Rational Man, at least the first book. I think that's life changing for a lot of people. Jack Donovan, 
uh, The Way of Men, other go-to books. There's a bunch, but, you know, just start reading. Just really start reading. Make a habit a couple nights a week or, I'm sorry, a couple hours a night if you can swing it, half an hour, whatever it is. And, and people have a visceral reaction to Rolo Tomasi simply because of who he is and who he portrays himself to be. He looks like something out of a... 1980s you know rock band so it cracks me up when you see him visually but when you sit back you listen to the book and you take it for what it is it's just aspects of human behavior Rolo Tomasi is sharp he's extremely sharp and he's never it's my opinion I don't think he's ever going to get the credit he's due because where he started at he started in the 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 forms you know 15 20 years ago whatever it was he started in the forums when it was just a bunch of guys on their desktops and talking shit about women, you know, but he's a very, very intelligent guy. And think of it like, <clears throat> think of it like you want to get into geology. All right. Well, there's only one professor that's been studying geology for all these 20 or 30 years. It's Rolo Tomasi, right? You don't have to agree with everything, everything he says, but nobody has spent that much time, putting that much effort in refining his message. And when I first found, I only, I've only been, I read his book and, and really kind of started listening to him maybe a year, year and a half ago. Um, it just wasn't on my radar. And I came from this preaching background. He, he cites all these different books on psychology. I read all that stuff five, 10, 15 years ago, depending on the book for, for my own reasons of, you know, where I was coming out, then I wind up divorced and kind of like, looking at everything we're talking about, stumble across Tomasi. And I go, yeah, I, because I had already intellectually grappled with a lot of what he's talking about, I was very open to what he was doing. And then what I see is he really has honed a lot of this stuff down. And so when I first found him, I thought this guy's kind of pessimistic. He's kind of, kind of, kind of hard. But the more I looked at it, I goes, no, he's not being hard. It just doesn't feel right to some people like the hypergamy uh, question. Right. He, and he can cut up a little bit, maybe have kind of laugh at, at, at different jokes in the red pill kind of, kind of way. But if you really look at what he's saying, generally speaking, he, he, he defends women. He's like, look, this is just their nature. Don't hate. It's just what it is. This is what they're going to do. And so I didn't mean to go on a thing about, you know, promoting Rolo. Yeah. Well, anybody listening to this podcast uh, really, it's life changing. Don't don't let your feelings and your Disney filtered life, your view of life get in the way of it. It's just really straightforward stuff. And especially in something like masculine frame, a man that will stick to his masculine frame and his morals and his other beliefs in life, but a man that will stick to his masculine frame, he's just going to have a better life. And, and it really just comes down to knowing who you are. And a lot of people, they were never taught to know who they are. Exactly. Because they've been managed their entire lives by their family, by their parents, by other caregivers in their life, by teachers, by, you know, anybody in their life. It's always this state. We've created a bunch of people pleasers out in society. And so they're just they're workers, they're pleasers. They do what they're told and they've never really asked the question, who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing and why am I doing it? Yeah. And they should. And then you won't be so offended by Rolo Tomasi. <laughs> well, it's being able to take information in that you may disagree with. And again, extracting the lesson for what it is and then using it to whatever means that you need it for. I think and I'll put this out there. and I hope I hope a lot of people hear this. I will 
I don't know. You might find some crazy off the cuff quote he said somewhere, but I would take anything that Rolo Tomasi, at least, especially anything he put in print. I would take anything Rolo Tomasi said, and I can defend it logically, objectively, without emotion. You know, even if he's joking around with something, I can drill down and say, "Well, this is what he's talking about." We may have to do this again and pull the table of contents and <laughs> yeah, and just go through that. I think that would probably be a lot of fun.